You're listening to the Bitcoin and Markets podcast. Check out bitcoinandmarkets.com for more. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Bitcoin and Markets live stream. My name is Ansel Lindner. I'm streaming on YouTube at BTC Market Update. On Twitter, handle is at Ansel Lindner. And of course, Telegram, my home base, t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. What we do here on the show is we try to understand Bitcoin. We try to understand macro so that we can understand how Bitcoin is going to take over the world. We talk about a broad range of topics, uh, including like monetary properties, uh, including central bank stuff, including cultural shifts and changes uh, that we expect. And this gives us asymmetric knowledge. You know, it gives us some alpha over other investors, uh, over other people. I'm not saying that this is an investment advice show. <laughs> it is not an investment advice show. Do your own research. But uh, we talk about a lot of things that most people don't uh, question. Okay, I have a great example of that right up front here today. Let me pull this up here. I didn't have this ready to go. Even though I delayed I delayed my telegram, guys. Uh, I was supposed to be going live at 12 o'clock. I said, oh, man, I'm not ready. And still, I'm not ready. Um, okay, let me pull this up. Okay, here it is. This was from Markets Mayhem for Markets on Twitter. And they showed this chart of financial conditions and that they have been getting easier despite the Fed raising rates. And Markets and Mayhem says, Financial conditions are far too easy for the Fed. Back to levels we haven't seen since early 2022, before the Fed started tightening. So what does this imply? I mean, he doesn't say directly that the Fed will therefore continue to tighten, but he does imply that these financial condition, conditions are too easy for the Fed, meaning that they will continue to clamp down. And what does that what does that mean? It means they're continue to raise rates. Okay, so he doesn't say it in so many words, but that's what he's saying here. And my response, of course, is that the Fed has tightened at the fastest rate in history, openly talks about kneecapping demand, but financial conditions get easier and people look at the Fed as if they're in control. So the, the problem with this chart, understanding this chart that Markets and Mayhem has here is thinking that the Fed is in control. So in that opening, when I said, you know, we look at things a little bit differently, um, we try to understand what's actually going on. I don't look at this chart and I try not to have a preconceived bias or a preconceived notion that somehow the Fed engineered this, these financial conditions. Okay. Something the Fed is doing, maybe they're doing some shadow easing, you know, and they're just hiding it perfectly from everybody and no one's found out anything about shadow easing and but they're doing shadow easing because somehow the fed is responsible for these easing of financial conditions no that is approaching this with a preconceived notion that the fed is in charge what you should gather from looking at a chart like this is that the fed is not in charge the fed does not set interest rates and we can look at another example of this so I did post this chart to Telegram just now. It's one of the cluster or the batch of charts that I put in there. Look at the 10-year. The 10-year is in its happy place right now, 3.5, 3.55%. But the Fed fund, the bottom of the Fed Fund's target range is at 
reverse repo is at 4.3 and interest on excess reserves are at 4.4. So that means that people are out there taking money, taking dollars, and they can go and swap them at the Fed overnight. This is the most pristine of pristine of collateral, okay, for 4.3%. But some, for some reason, they're buying the 10-year at 3.5. What can explain this discrepancy? Are people just idiots? Are the, is the, the deepest, most liquid, most sophisticated market in the world the market for the United States treasuries. Are these people dumb? No. Who would you put more, who would you bet more money on? The most sophisticated, deepest market in the world or Chairman Powell? The Fed does not control anything. The Fed is just psychologically manipulating the market. So if you're new to the channel, if you're new to my content, that is the big takeaway. The Fed doesn't matter. And now when we put that into Bitcoin, uh, into the Bitcoin kind of uh, forecasting, Bitcoin is a commodity money. So we have had decades of credit-based money because we've had decades of fairly trustworthy creditors, you know, uh, trustworthy globalization, trustworthy international institutions. And we could trust each other or the, the countries could trust each other and bit large multinationals could trust each other between nations as if borders didn't exist, right? When you look at going forward as those, the trust in those international institutions break down as globalization breaks down. I mean, there was just something out a headline this morning about the, some U.S. Air Force general said two years until war with China. We'll see about that. But, you know, this is the state of the world right now that there is war being threatened between the two greatest nuclear powers and the two greatest economies. And in that situation, yeah, people are going to have to pick sides. People are going to have to not trust each other because what happens if one, some mid tier country picks the wrong side or has a difference of opinion with the United States and has to switch or whatever, you know, look five, 10 years down the road, it's very uncertain what's going to happen. So in that case, people are going to, governments have to start prepping. Governments have to turn back to trustless money, and that's commodity money, that's Bitcoin. So the Fed isn't in charge, the market is in charge, and right now we're going towards a more distributed world, at least in economic ties to each other, whatever. That's that's generally what you get on the show, and we break down all of these different pieces, and I encourage interaction on the telegram. I encourage interaction with asking questions um, on these live streams. We, we have, now I'm going to try, I used to have people come on the mic, but now I'm going to try doing just written comments. So if you guys have in telegram, if you have written comment, you know, something to add or something to ask, then you can do that in the thread for the, for the stream and same over there on YouTube. You can put it in the comment section and I'll I'll be able to see it through my sophomore here. So anyway, that that's what, that's my opening. <laughs> that's my opening. Let's take a look at some more charts. All right, Bitcoin price, according to Bitstamp. Right now we're sitting at 23,179. Uh, this black horizontal line is the volume by price. That That was the area. I didn't think that this 
rally would be able to break through right away, that that volume by price would offer more resistance to the price. But of course, as you can see, it has it had a highest weekly and daily close above that uh, horizontal resistance. But is that the top for now? Uh, are we going to come back a little bit? And this is still the bullish or the bearish divergence here with the RSI. Um, I am expecting some correction, but you can also see in multiple places. I did post these charts this morning onto Telegram where we had an upward correction. And that sounds kind of backwards in a bull market. You have an upward correction, but we had a period where multiple periods in 2019 and 2020, where the price would go up, hit high on the RSI and consolidate, but consolidate in a bull flag, like setting just tiny marginal higher highs throughout the time. Then towards the end of that, it, it would have a kind of a large spike, but it wouldn't be a new low. You know, it'd still be a higher low, but it would force the RSI down to around 50. So we could see that. Um, but I don't know. I think that we probably will see 21 before we see 31. And that's still what I'm looking at for the Bitcoin price. But I do think that this has set the new bull market. And there's a lot of disbelief out there. I wrote about this. Today's Monday, so I'm writing the newsletter. Um, if you guys want to subscribe to that, if you're new to my content, then you can go to bitcoinandmarkets.com and sign up for the free tier over there is the newsletter. Anyway, I'm writing that and there's this general disbelief out there in the market. Well, you guys know the psychological chart where it goes, you know, mania, then disbelief on the way down or whatever it is, a despair. And then it turns around and we get a bull market going, but it's still disbelief. People are in disbelief. And that's what I feel right now in the market, both on stocks and on Bitcoin. Let's bring up the stock market chart. I use the S&P 500 just as a general stock market chart. And what I did this morning, and I posted in telegrams, I went back and I looked at all of the periods where we had a triple golden cross. And let me bring up the triple golden cross for people watching on YouTube or on Twitter. You can see the triple golden cross. And I did post that this morning onto telegram. But right now we have the 50 and the 20 both crossing the 200 at the same time. And actually, it's a little bit more clear in the futures market. It's very, very close. I guess the 20 crossed the 50 before, but it's within a day or two here. Um, and I went back in the history of the S&P 500, and I could not find a similar situation. I did find periods where they crossed within a week or two of each other, you know, give or take but not where they cross within a day or two of each other. So this is a very unique kind of bullish golden cross that I couldn't find anywhere else. Um, plus, I mean, we do have that horizontal resistance that I talked about, and we did kind of get rejected by that horizontal resistance. Uh, but that is fairly weak. It's fairly weak compared to the 200-day. It's fairly weak compared to the 50-day, uh, compared to this long-term descending trend line, bear trend line. And yeah, so that that's the was the last ditch effort to reject this breakout. It got rejected there, but I don't think that that um, ends the bull market for the stocks for stocks or for Bitcoin. Um, also, if you go back in history and you look at other 
recessions like the dot-com great financial crisis, even like uh, the, I think there was a recession in 91 and 87. If you look at those, once we pass the 200 day and once we have a golden cross, that's the end of the recession in all of those previous recessions, including the great financial crisis. So uh, that it is, this is a huge, huge thing. And a lot of people are going to remain in disbelief. So again, I'm probably one of the only people in macro commentary, in for macro forecasting, that is forecasting a bullish 2023 for stocks and for Bitcoin. I mean, of course, Bitcoin is going to be way bigger than uh, returns on stocks, but that is what I'm forecasting here. Let's take a look at oil and take off these moving averages. So oil remains, it's really having trouble with this $81, $82 region. It's been rejected now three times. I do think that we're going to have a slowdown in the economy, all right? But a slowdown from 10% nominal GDP. I, I went through, I don't know if I actually went through on this. I think I did on this stream on Friday or something. Um, I went through nominal GDP. Oh, no, that was, sorry, that was FedWatch, yeah, um, FedWatch. Nominal GDP was 9% in the fourth quarter. And in the third quarter, no, in, sorry, in 2022, it was 9%. In 2021, it was 10%. And that's nominal, right? That's before you subtract price increases or the inflation index. But as we slow from 10% nominal GDP back down to 1% and prices flatline or come back down, right? We're in a race between nominal GDP and CPI which can fall faster. So we are going to see a slowdown, big time. Will it be a recession? I mean, not a textbook. It's probably not going to be a textbook recession here, guys. Oil is saying that the economy is slowing down. It's having a real hard time breaking out of $81, $82 zone. And that's with the reopening of China that everyone told us was going to be super bullish all this demand from China is coming back on. I don't understand because China is the new global hegemon. It's the new peer competitor of the United States. It's going to dominate the world. And they're reopening, guys. Don't you know that we need to be very, very bullish on oil? God, I'm talking about the exact same line for months. I remember watching or listening to an episode of Hidden Forces. It's another macro podcast. I mean, he does real quality stuff. But he had this oil expert on, and I think the oil expert's like part of his team that does regular contributions. And it was back probably, I want to say it was back August, September of last year. And this oil expert saying why structurally the oil market's going to go higher. And this is just a temporary blip. You know, it's, we went way high. Now we're overcorrecting and it's going to go back up. And th this whole time I'm like, no, no, no. There's no demand out there. The demand for oil, the supply versus demand, says that oil is going to get cheaper over the next decade or two. And most expert, most macro people, most macro forecasters, when you ask them, they're all about $100, $200, $300 a barrel oil. I mean, Max Kaiser, he's not really a macro ex expert. He's more of like a macro personality, I would say. But, you know, he constantly is talking about $300 a barrel oil and all this stuff. So. That's just not going to happen. And people that are new to my content, why is that? Because 
the end of this system is deflationary. It's not necessarily true deflation, but it's deflationary. It's a deflationary pressure as we have lower and lower productivity of debt. We have to add more debt, but that debt is used to pay off the debt. Plus, it's not productively used to grow. So you just continually add debt. Whoop-de-doo. It's just adding debt to a debt problem. It doesn't matter. It's a deflationary pressure, even though it's maybe a net increase in the amount of money. It's a deflationary pressure. So the, 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 what that results in is low growth and low inflation. And that's what we're returning to. So that's how I can say uh, these other macro es- experts on your structural bullish call on oil. No, this not likely. Okay. It's, I mean, maybe we have obviously periodic swings in price. That's why recently I've been saying I wouldn't be surprised with a rally to $90 on WTI oil. But Overall, my thesis is for flat or negative oil prices or changes in oil prices. So anyway, let's take a look at another one of my favorites, the Hong Kong dollar. I did put this into the Telegram too in that packet of charts that I posted. And it is sitting right now at 7.83 Hong Kong dollars per US dollar. And you can see the red lines are the pegs. So it has an upper limit of 7.85 and a lower limit of 7.75. The way I interpret this is as this approaches the higher end of the peg, that means it's a weakening Hong Kong dollar. They have to go out in the market and sell US dollars and buy Hong Kong dollars. That means that there is dollar stress. There's strong dollar stress, not only in Hong Kong, but using Hong Kong as a proxy for a lot of the East Asian economies. It's just something that I think has worked well and helps me think about dollar pressure is this Hong Kong peg. When it's at the top, there's more pressure, uh, strong dollar pressure. And when it's at the bottom, that's easy dollar pressure or lack of <laughs> lack of dollar pressure. Um, so as this approaches back up to the top of the range, you know, it means that the dollar is strengthening out there and there's more dollar pressure. So we should see that in the DXY. And what what are we seeing right now? Well, we are seeing kind of a turnaround. We'll have to see how this week closes, but the dollar does have three green days in a row. And going back here, I mean, the last time we had three green days in a row was back in November. So it's been a long time and we shall see. Okay, um, let's get into some Bitcoin stuff. I'm going to go back to my, this is my placeholder screen. This is my website, guys. If you're watching on YouTube or Twitter, I put out here all of my podcasts that I do. I, each one of these posts has all the charts I talk about. So if you don't catch the live stream and you come back, uh, you can just go to the post for that website or for that uh, episode and see all the charts that I'm talking about during that show. So. Anyway, check out BitcoinandMarkets.com. And also, if you want to support, this is a member-supported podcast almost entirely. I am starting to put some ads, auto ads on the podcast, but uh, we'll see if that (laughs) has any monetary benefit at all. I haven't gotten the uh, first report of how those ads are doing. But anyways, um, so yeah, this is a member-supported podcast. So if you want to support, go to BitcoinandMarkets.com and you can find uh, the tiers there for support. 
Okay, what was I going to do here? I was going to do talk about some Bitcoin stuff. Scrolling up here in the Telegram. Okay, well, this isn't Bitcoin, but I want to talk about this. So I did Stephen Lupka. Stephen Lupka. He has a weird Twitter handle, but what I'm going to do, I'm going to find this again. If I can. Okay, here it is. Okay, so Stephen, I met Stephen down in Naples at the Bitcoin Day down in Naples a couple weekends ago. And he works for Swan. He is very smart guy, uh, super nice guy. But I, I'm, I'm using this poll here that he's running as an example, just a, ta- a way to let me uh, talk about these this topic. So he says, should technology be subordinate to culture or should culture be subordinate to technology? The operating bias of the entire tech landscape is that tech development should be unrestricted by culture and we should just accept any changes at face value. Is that true? I responded, I said that uh, neither are subordinate to the other. They are both subordinate to survival. And then on Telegram, I had this little rant. Um, I like to talk about these types of things because it does affect macro and it affects Bitcoin. You know, my view of how Bitcoin adoption dominates or how Bitcoin will dominate is through natural processes, through the human animal, humans being individuals, but at the same time being members of society. I think that members, uh, I think culture and our society affect us a lot more than Austrians, Austrian economics, uh, and also libertarians and anarchists, which I consider myself somewhat an anarchist. Uh, At least I think that 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 is the most efficient way to organize society, depending on your goals. But we are not just individuals. You know, a lot of people... (laughs) I mean, people are not rational to a high degree out there. I mean, there is some rationality in human beings, of course, but people overestimate how rational human beings are. I mean, just look at the political debates that we have today. You know, people will openly contradict themselves in the same sentence and think it is a rational thought. They think they're really rational and kind of lost my train of thought there, but... um, This is what I said in the telegram. I said, should is not a legit question, is or is not. And when I wrote that the first time, I was like, is this sound like Yoda? Like what Yoda would say, do or do not, don't try. Yeah, so there is no should, it is is or is not. Is culture subordinate to, or is technology subordinate to culture or is culture subordinate to technology? Um, We can't, there's no way of saying, should making some moral judgment about this. I mean, morality is a a broader topic. Maybe I can get into that more in another podcast, but uh, in this sense, you know, should bacteria evolve in a certain way or should it evolve in another way? You know, should it pursue this kind of strategy or should it pursue another strategy evolutionarily? Like should is not, is kind of not, doesn't make sense in that context. And that's the way I see this question. You know, should technology be subordinate to culture? I think they are roughly the same thing. I mean, I think technology is kind of a subcomponent of culture, but they are both being ruled by evolutionary processes. 
rationality has very little to do with it. Oh, what I, I remember what I was going to say before about people contradicting themselves in the same sentence and thinking they're rational. Um, also, you know, there's so much about our mood, like not our, our behavior is not based off rationality to a very high degree. And people don't want to admit this, but if I'm hungry, I'm going to act differently. If I have a nutritional deficiency, I'm going to behave differently. If I'm sleep deprived, I'm going to behave differently. If my culture is a certain way uh, for in a certain situation, social situation or business situation or something, I'm going to behave differently. So no, very little of our behavior is based off our own rational processing. And then what you think is rational processing is probably not as rational as you think for most people, not, not the guys listening to this, but um, no, most people I think have contradictions built within their thought process and they don't even notice it. I, I know I do somewhere uh, and I don't mind people pointing that out to me, but so culture and technology go hand in hand. Also, what I didn't write here in the telegram is that I think culture is geographically dependent. So, you know, there's a mountain culture and most mountain cultures are somewhat similar. There is a desert culture. Most desert cultures are somewhat similar. There's a coastal co culture. Um, there is a fertile valley culture. There is a water like based off rivers culture or based off like the good harbors where you're outward looking. Um, so cultures vary. Different geography leads to different culture. And that culture will treat its subcomponent of technology differently. So there will be some places on the planet that embrace technology more readily. And they will be always somewhat technologically advanced. Of course, technology does change our relationship with geography. So you have to think about that as well as you move through the millennia or centuries with new technology. How does that new technology affect our interaction with our environment and our geography and our climate and all of that stuff? Uh, and how is that going to affect our culture? So if you go back uh, 2000 years, our technological advancement stage, I think, led to China being the most technologically uh, or at least open to innovation and, and things like that. That's why we have so many of the earliest inventions coming out of China. But as that technology changed our relationship to our geography, then Europe became the home of innovation. And now maybe we're going through a different thing with the internet. Maybe the internet is going to change the, and Bitcoin, of course, but the internet is going to change the way we interact with our geography and the way cultures develop around the world. Like you could see unmoored subcultures within cultures that are based off connections with the internet that aren't terrestrial, but we don't know that. Um, so anyway, should technology be subordinate to, subordinate to culture? No, they're both subordinate to our human animal living within a society within, you know, natural geographic constraints. Now, <laughs> now the hard thing is, once you're there, now try to explain what we see out there. And that, that's kind of what I do here and there on the podcast as well. And if you guys have pushback or you want to ask any questions about that, feel free to do that. Okay, what else do we have for Bitcoin? This was a big headline that I saw. 
I can't bring it up on the screen. So I'm going to go back to a placeholder for the stream. And the headline was, I can't remember who shared it on Twitter, but it was somebody else. Maybe it was documenting Bitcoin or something, but a Ukrainian refugee flees to Poland with 2000 in Bitcoin on USB drive. Now for us, this, you know, being in Bitcoin, this sounds very normal. <laughs> like, duh, of course this would happen. Why wouldn't this happen? But this sounds big to a lot of people. I mean, people still put kilos of gold up their ass, right? People still do that to get it across the borders. So th those guys reading this type of headline would be like, what? I could just carry a USB drive up there instead of kilos worth of gold? I mean, this is a big deal to me. Like, Well, it's, it, will, it is a big deal to a lot of people, I, I feel. So that is that was an amazing headline. I thought it was awesome. Okay, what else do we have here? Oh, man. Yes, this video. Sorry, guys. If you're watching, my mustache is itching my nose. Uh, so I keep having to push it down. Anyways, um, Ray Dalio, big Bitcoin skeptic. Or not, I wouldn't even call him Bitcoin skeptic. He is a anti-Bitcoin person. Big CCP shill, right? Probably works closely with the CCP. Maybe he's a member of the CCP. We don't know, but he loves China and he's been promoting this uh, China and even though China's collapsing and all this stuff. But he has a video out just to hit, I, was it a podcast with Lex Friedman? I never watch Lex or listen to his podcast until I get a clip of somebody on there. But anyway, uh, he Dahlia was on there and he said that he sees Bitcoin at, like a alternative gold and that we are entering an era of money competition. That's exactly what Bitcoiners have been saying. And slowly but surely, these people are going to have to yield to the Bitcoin not dying, to the argumentation, to the arguments of Bitcoin. And they're going to have to address it. And Dalio, who has been a staunch anti-Bitcoin guy, is going to be, you know, now he sees Bitcoin as an alternative gold, which is, I think, a huge thing. He is, even though he's, <laughs> even though he's wrong a lot, at least his public persona and what he says out there, you can never really trust these big, um, you know, hedge fund managers and stuff because they'll say one thing, but they'll do another, right? He's just setting the field for <laughs> the Muppets that he wants to fleece. But anyways, eventually they're, they're all going to have to to come around and admit the Bitcoin arguments. Uh, th that reminds me of a clip that I talked about uh, with um, Neil Howe. He's the author of The Fourth Turning, or one of them, one of the two authors of The Fourth Turning. I think he's a Real Vision contributor, like contributor on demographics or something. So he's constantly in the macro space talking about stuff. And Daniel DiMartino Booth, DiMartino Booth, she was interviewing him and she said, are the Bitcoiners right? Is there going to be a non-sovereign currency? And he goes, non-sovereign currency in an international crisis? No way. That's a non-starter. But th that's the wrong word to use, right? That using the word currency actually displays that we're not talking about the same thing. So Dalio here 
is using the proper term when he says there's going to be a competition between monies, not currencies. He doesn't say currencies. He says monies. And But Neil Howe is stuck on this idea of currency. He says, Neil Howe said, never in history has a crisis led to a movement towards non-sovereign currency. Well, that, that's kind of crazy because no other foreturning, Neil, has had a non-commodity money. Think about that. No other foreturning has had a non-commodity money. And no other foreturning has led to a non-commodity money. The pure credit-based money that we have today was after the foreturning. Several decades after the foreturning, the last one, where we went towards a sovereign currency. But before that, it's always been a non-sovereign money, a commodity money. And Neil Howe doesn't want to admit that. Okay, what else do we have here? I write about all this, not all of it, but a lot of what I'm talking about today, right now on the newsletter today. So make sure you guys check that out. I appreciate uh, word of mouth is the great, the greatest way to spread the show and to you know, support the show. So if you can't support over on bitcoinandmarkets.com, at least please share it on your social media, share these episodes, share the newsletter. Highly appreciate that. Uh, try to extend my reach here as much as I can. Uh, the last topic I did want to really briefly touch on was this ordinal debate. So apparently now there's some new layer two protocol that is ordinals, uh, where you can take a Satoshi and you can mark it using a separate outside protocol to mark the Satoshi. And it takes no update to Bitcoin at all. Uh, you can use Bitcoin the way it is now. It's just that the nodes or the people that are using this extra protocol, they would have to run extra equipment and or trust a, a third party, really trust a third party because all this would be based off a third party. I don't see why this is even a conversation topic, why this is even a debate. A debate. Very similar things have always been possible on Bitcoin. And it's very related to color coins, at least in my initial uh, looking at this proposal or this project. Um, and lastly, that you know, Bitcoin's incentive structure is going to take care of all this. So we don't really have to worry too much about that. So I think it's a lot of hoopla about nothing, but we'll see. We'll see how this grows. There's going to be no hard fork to make this impossible. It's going to be possible. So it's just I don't think the economics back this up and the game theory doesn't back it up either. That's going to be it for today, guys. Thanks for joining me. I hope you have a, had a great weekend. Hope you have a great rest of your day coming up. And I will talk to you guys on the next one. Bye.